Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 393 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, I got to be honest, this was a fun one. I am so excited to bring you my conversation with Rob Palinka. Rob is the LA Lakers GM and Vice President of Basketball Operations. We talk about all kinds of things. And this episode is brought to you by ProMedia Fire. You can book your free digital strategy session today at promediafire.com forward slash church growth. And by ServeHQ, you can go to servehq.church to start your free 14-day trial for their online subscription tools for churches and not-for-profits. Use the code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, and get 10% off for life. Well, this was such a fun episode and such a privilege to do it. Uh, after he won the world championship with the LA Lakers uh, back in late 2020, we got uh, an email from Rob saying, hey, I've been a listener to this show if you ever want to chat. And uh, yeah, kind of missed that email. We get like thousands a week. And uh, I don't know, it just didn't come up. And so I had a mutual friend text us and says, hey, the the GM of the LA Lakers would like to connect with you. You open to that? I'm like, you mean the LA, like basketball? Yeah. Uh, so I connected with Rob. Turns out he's been listening for a few years. Thank you, Rob. That, that was just so humbling. And what an incredible leader. And I had to be upfront with Rob. And this is why I had so many friends who wanted to be me. I, I am not a sports guy. So of course I know who the Lakers are and Kobe Bryant and LeBron James. Yeah, I know that. But like, some of you would be like, oh, I got I got so many questions. So I wanted to tackle this from a leadership perspective and from a number of different things. Did a lot of homework getting ready for this. And Rob and I just had a great time. So I'm so excited uh, to bring you that conversation. So Rob is a graduate from the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. He graduated with high honors. And then he is also a graduate uh, cum laude from the University of Michigan Law School, where he graduated in 1996. He played basketball as well with the University of Michigan. We talk about that. And then he went on to become a sports agent. We talk a bit about his career. He was named by Forbes as one of the top 10 sports agents in the world and represented, among others, Kobe Bryant and had a lifelong friendship with that. We talk about that and swimming with sharks. Like That is a fascinating story. And then uh, more recently joined the LA Lakers as vice president of basketball operations and general manager. So in his time with the Lakers, Rob has been widely praised for transforming the team DNA, constructing a roster and staff that earned the franchise their 17th NBA championship in 2020. He helped make one of the most significant free agent signings in team history in 2018 when the Lakers added four-time NBA MVP LeBron James. Following that with a franchise-altering trade that brought seven-time All-Star Anthony Davis to L.A. And he's also introduced something called Lakers Genius Talks, a series of life skill discussions. We talk about that for Lakers players led by luminaries such as Denzel Washington, Dave Chappelle, Kendrick Lamar, Allison Felix, Dwayne Johnson, and Elon Musk. Yeah, that's how uh, Rob got himself into a Tesla. Fascinating backstory. And so he coordinates all of the day-to-day -day functions of basketball operations, uh, making personnel decisions, contract negotiations, salary caps, scouting, 
the whole deal. And uh, we get into the whole leadership side of that and uh, also his faith as well. It's been a fascinating conversation. Such a privilege. You know, days like this make me say, how do I get to do this? This is this is unreal. And I'm so excited to bring it to you. Hey, you are getting ready for 2021, right? So how do you win the digital game? Well, there's a couple of options. Everyone's online now. You got to be, right? You can hire an internal staff member. It's expensive and they're only an expert in one or two main areas. Or you could hire ProMedia Fire. You get an entire team of experts for less than the cost of a professional staff hire. So you also save a bit on employee taxes and health insurance and staff turnover. It becomes a thing of the past because you've got an agency representing you. So the choice is yours. One person or an entire team and teams win championships. So book a free strategy session today at promediafire.com forward slash church growth. And if you're looking for your digital solution when it comes to your online subscription services and how you communicate, you got to check out ServeHQ. They have two products that can really help you, two services trained up is an online video training platform for employees and volunteers. It houses a library of 700 plus videos and simple tools to create training courses with your own videos and training to fit your needs. Even more relevant today than it was two years ago, right? With everything flipping online. And then Huddle Up is their digital communication hub. It does texting, email, and chat, replaces Facebook groups, MailChimp, Remind, Slack, and GroupMe. It's a central hub for communication and It has safety and accountability baked into the design so it's safe to use with parents and students. And in the new year, for listeners of this podcast, you get a special offer. So you can go to servehq.church, start your free 14-day trial, and then use the code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, to get 10% off for life. So without further ado, I'm so excited to bring you my conversation with Rob Palenka, He is the LA Lakers GM and Vice President of Basketball Operations. Here we go. Rob, it's such a thrill to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Kerry. I've I've so enjoyed your lessons on leadership. Uh, I commute in California up to 405, so your podcast is such an inspiration. And, and, And it's interesting because I feel like Sometimes I learn as much from the guests as I do your questions. You answer such, you give such amazing questions. And of course, things are all over the map from an executive at Chick-fil-A or Ann Graham Lotz telling stories about the dinner timetable um, or a bakery in the Rust Belt. But, you know, just picking up little nuggets that you can incorporate into your own leadership is such a gift. And so much of that is provided through your lens. So we all appreciate you so much. Rob, I'll tell you, it was a thrill to find out uh, that you were a listener. I mean, that was that was a that was a pretty exciting day for me. And as as I shared with you, I have a lot of friends who wish they were me today. And as I confess to you, I know who the Lakers are. I know who Kobe Bryant is. I know LeBron James, but I'm not a sports guy. So there's a lot of people. I'm I've got my doors locked just in case I get uh, taken over for this interview. But it's a thrill. And you know, I I don't know whether you find this or not. But I find that that great leadership for me is really eclectic, and it comes from very unlikely sources. Is that similar to your journey? We, we want to focus on your story, but like, do you love learning from left field, right field, like just even non-sports stuff? It's like, wow, I, like like you mentioned, you know, the uh, Mark uh, who has that bakery in Oakmont, Pennsylvania, right? Like that was a couple of years ago on the show, but like, I just learned so much from him and having been to that bakery, you have to go sometime, Rob, you really do. 
No, I think leadership is the lens of leadership is such a broad mosaic. And um, you mentioned Kobe, of course, just such a dear friend, but he grew up in Italy. um, As, as the listeners probably know, he had a lot of years over there. So he just developed this curiosity almost as like a Renaissance man to dig into things really deeply. So, you know, he would, he would go and study Michelangelo, you know, and, and how he did a statue or study a Da Vinci painting and incorporate that into his basketball game. So having been best friends with him for 20 years, you, you get this curiosity about life that draws you into all sorts of different places to develop your leadership lens. Um, and, and your program has done that for me. I, I think of the places my friendship with him brought me. I, I remember there was one time, Kerry, where he was trying to formulate a new aspect of his game and the way he moved on the court. And he was drawing inspiration from how great white sharks attacked. And so, you know, I I get a call from Kobe and he says, Hey, I want to, I want to take a boat out to the Farallon islands, which is 20, you know, it's a, it's a long boat ride off of the coast of Mexico. And, you know, before you know it, we're out there in a cage watching these massive creatures just swim around us. And he's, He's studying how that may, you know, affect how he moves around on the court and how he attacks the basket. So, um, yeah, passion and leadership and learning can come from so many things in life. Wow, that's fascinating. So you went out with him into the ocean to watch these sharks move. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget that. It was a, t- a trip of a lifetime. He He's extraordinarily patient and um, you know, he's also a genius. So he's, he's got all this stuff that he studied about him and we're down there for an hour. And I remember looking out, you know, the water's cold and you're in a cage and, and, and minutes are slow when you're looking out into the unknown. And there was one point in time after an hour, of course, with my patience level, I was ready to go up and say, Hey, great trip, great adventure. We didn't see anything, but all of a sudden, like the ether opened like a curtain in this, you know, 15 foot, great white shark just comes out of nowhere right up to the cage. And, you know, it was a, it was a holy moment when you see something like that. No kidding. Yeah. And a little, uh, I would think a little bit, uh, you know, scary as well (laughs) when you realize you're that close to one of the forces of nature. So I got to ask on behalf of all the basketball fans, did he learn, like, what did he learn? Did he change his move? Did he like, what was his observation that day? He did. I mean, it, it, it's for him, it was a thing of, of pace. So like if you watch athletes move, sometimes they move steadily and sometimes they explode and move quickly. And if you look at how a great white shark attacks a seal, they kind of methodically circle it and come up and then they pounce, you know, so it was all about movement. But, um, you know, I remember with him too reading uh, Walter Isaacson's book on Da Vinci, you know, um, yeah. and just how if Da Vinci was going to paint a hummingbird, he wouldn't just look at it and paint it. He would, he would dissect it and, and build it from the inside out. And I think um, when you look at things through that lens and that level of detail, you learn so much more. And I think that's what the geniuses in life, um, you know, inspire us with. I, I, I was telling you before we jumped on, we, we have a thing at the Lakers called the Lakers Genius Talks, where I try to bring in outside leaders and speakers to, to talk to our team, to LeBron James and Anthony Davis, because the best way to learn isn't always just, Hey, the basketball coach is teaching you basketball. It's how do we dimensionalize our lives? And 
Um, we one of our speakers was Elon Musk, who's an you know a fascinating inventor and SpaceX and Tesla. And I remember one of our players said to him as a leader, um, you know, how do you stay ahead of the competition? And his answer was so fascinating. I mean, in typical genius style, he he kind of thought for a second, you know, had his hand on his chin, he was pensive, and then he said, if you're making rockets that do things that NASA can't do, and you're making electric cars that can drive themselves while the others are still filling their cars up at the gas station, you don't really have to worry about the competition. You just have to be great at what you do. And, you know, the room just went silent. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yeah. You think about him because he's a subject of fascination for me too. Uh, I mean, I've read this multiple places, but you can't always trust the internet. Like he's building a whole under, well, I guess he's now moving to Texas from, if you can believe that, but he's building a whole like underground system of roads in California to solve the traffic problem. Is that some, do you know anything about that? Or There's been talk of that, you know, because of the pandemic uh, traffic in California has been lighter, but when it's heavy, I mean, an underground tunnel would be great, but yeah, you yeah. know, but some of the leaders we brought in, I, I remember Denzel Washington, of course, he's an Academy award winning, um, you know, amazing actor, one of the greatest. And he sits courtside to a lot of Lakers games and he came and he filmed, um, you know, training day where he was this, um, you know, hardcore character with like a, you know, a killer edge and used foul language and, you know, was kind of a, a nasty um, edgy character. And, and we've talked about, you know, how do you set your mindset to compete, you know, as an athlete, like how, what's the right frame of mind to get in? So we asked him a question. We said, you know, when you were trying to get into that character for training day, how did you in the morning kind of get in that edgy, nasty mindset? So you became authentic and real. And his answer was, was stunning. He, he's uh, Carrie, he, um, he looked at the room and he said, well, the way that I got into character for that particular character that he won, I think he won an Oscar for that one. He, he said, you know what I would do is I would, you know, in my hotel room on set, but before I went to bed at night, I would take my shoes and I would put them deep underneath my bed so that the next morning I know that I need to get up and start my day on my knees in humility and prayer. Wow. And I was like, wow, you know, you would think he would be like boxing or, you know, doing something hardcore, but, but he emptied himself and kind of started his day in humility to kind of take on that role, which is fascinating. Well, I love your curiosity and your lifelong learning. I want to go back a couple of decades to 1996. So you played some very, very serious um, basketball with Michigan, but you were also fairly serious about schooling. And from what I know, um, you know, often it's it's kind of, a, well, you're going to do athletics or you're going to do school, but you graduated cum laude with a JD, a Juris Doctor, so you're a lawyer. I'm curious as to why you decided to take law so seriously, because you were a hyper-competitive athlete and Michigan did really, really well when, when you were at uh, Michigan. So uh, I'd love to know what, uh, what made you pursue law as seriously as you did, because you did clerkship and the whole deal. It's a great question, Carrie. I think sometimes when, you know, God's faithfulness seems to be most clear when you look through the review mirror of life and you, yeah. you see how he kind of pieces your story together. Yeah. Um, and early on in life, I, I was raised in Illinois, um, just in a small town. And uh, 
early on, both my, my dad, who was, was a coach and teacher, and my mom, who was a nurse, you know, we had humble origins. Um, he was a public school teacher. Hmm. Um, but early on, you know, th- they really drove home in me. If, if you uh, pursue excellence um, with three things, you know, with, with sports, pursue excellence in that, with, with your education, and then with your faith, um, that's just a great, those are great pillars to start your journey. And so I, I kind of took that to heart and, um, didn't have a particular passion about the law until I was recruited to play basketball and, you know, was, was extraordinarily blessed to be on a national championship team at the university of Michigan. But when I started my journey at, 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 uh, at college at university, I was matched with a mentor um, who was a law school professor, who was a student advisor, and um, his name was Professor Douglas Kahn, and he was an extraordinary, or is an extraordinary human in that he really centered his life around serving others and, and just giving. I mean, a brilliant, he was a master chess player and won ping pong titles, just a, an extraordinary human being. But he centered his life on his students and on me. He and his wife would have me over for dinners and talk about the law and talk about the constitution and just really burst this curiosity about law school. And so when I was done, I graduated from the business school. And then when I was finished getting that degree, which I knew was something I wanted to do, I was faced with, Hey, do I go on and try to play professional ball, you know, either in the States or overseas but I felt like I really wanted to honor Professor Khan and be one of his students. And the University of Michigan Law School is one of the top in the world. And when I applied and got in, I just, I wanted to give back. And it, it set me down this path, um, you know, of eventually getting into being a sports agent and now a general manager of the Lakers. Yeah, so we, we uh, touched on it a little bit, but you represented a number of NBA players, uh, particularly Kobe Bryant. Uh, you were very well known for being his longtime agent, his friend, worked with him until his you know sad, tragic, untimely death uh, a while back. What were, we've, we touched on this already, but I'm sure this could be a whole episode in and of itself. What were some of the qualities, habits, and disciplines that made Kobe the man and the player that he was? Listen, Kerry, I mean, since the tragedy of January 26th, there isn't a really a, a moment of the day where I don't think about Kobe's influence and, and Gigi Gianna's influence, his daughter, who was also our goddaughter. Um, I, they inspire me every day, and um, they um, are some of the, the greatest gifts of, of my life's journey. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting when, when Kobe played, so Kobe played 20 years for the Lakers and of course won five world championships and multiple MVPs and gold medals. And I remember, I mean, he was truly his, was a best friend. And I remember uh, when he finished, when he was retired, I had a great opportunity to, you know, have a, have a dinner with him or, you know, just sitting on couches, maybe having a glass of wine or something. And, and I asked him, I said, um, I was like, Hey, looking back on those 20 years and one of the great sports careers in the history of the world, like what, is there anything maybe you would have done a little bit different or better? You know, just that was late night conversations. And I was really um, moved by his answer. Cause he said, um, he's like, not a whole lot, but maybe one thing is empathy. 
And again, he's known as the black Mamba kind of, you know, that again, killer mentalities. You, you wouldn't expect that to be his answer. And then he kind of unpacked it a little bit. He said, you know, when you, when you start, I started as an 18 year old, he said, you know, you, you kind of have a my way or the highway lens on leadership because you, you think you know it all, you know, and you come in and you expect everybody to think like you, to play like you, um, and to analyze the world like you. And, and there's lessons of leadership here. Um, but he said, as I matured and got, you know, in the second half of my career towards the end, I realized how important it was at a, as a leader to have the quality of empathy. And he said, what I mean by that is, how do I get the most out of my teammates? Like, they're not all like me. I have to understand there was one player named Pau Gasol who was one of Kobe's great friends and an all-star player. And he, he had a European upbringing in Spain and was just, he had a different, different set of life circumstances and Kobe had to kind of tap into him to make him great. And so he had to start thinking more like him. He had to understand his past. And I think that's so important on, on any team that we're involved in is understanding other people's lens, their story and having empathy. And when Kobe did that, he won three championships with Shaq, but then he also won two, you know, sort of on his own. And he said the key to winning that second set was, was that quality understanding his teammates and how to make, make them great. One of the the things, because you were an agent for uh, a number of years, and and I don't think that you know your your job is still negotiation. We're going to talk about trades you made in the off season after winning the world championship, et cetera, et cetera. But leadership is a lot of negotiation. So I'm a law school grad as well. My favorite course was lawyers negotiator. That and constitutional law. But that negotiation course, I still think about all the time. What are some of the best strategies that you have discovered for negotiation? Gosh, Carrie, that's a that's a good question too. I think as an agent, I was able to negotiate, you know, for twenty years, and now as a general manager, I think, you know, early on, I think that there was a there was a way of doing business that you you know that was sort of hey, you you had to win the deal, and that didn't that didn't necessarily you know work. I think if hmm. if you go into a negotiation with sort of like a scorched earth mentality. Like I need to get everything and the other person needs to get on their knees. I, I really think that's going to not lead to maybe the best result. We, we try to, I've tried to do things as an agent and as a general manager, more through a partnership lens in a lens of collaboration. Um, you know, oftentimes when I'm negotiating a deal um, with another general manager in the NBA or with a player agent, you're going to have to come back and be at the table over and over with them on other deals. And so I think both parties want to walk away and say, hey, this, this was an effective partnership lens and it, it benefited both of us. And so I think, again, if you can approach it that way, you'll probably get a way better result. And then I think the other thing I've learned is, you know, maybe some of the negotiating books would say, oh, you know, hold your ace card or, you know, don't, don't show the other side what you're thinking. I, I would say probably a more of a transparency lens leads to more productive um, deals and partnerships if you really um, approach it that way. Um, you know, oftentimes you'll hear leaders say, well, I just need to do what's best for the organization. And I, I get that to some extent, but how about like, 
I need to do what's best for all the parties involved here. You know, maybe that's a broader lens. Yeah, that's you know that strikes me as intuitively correct and and generous. You have a, you have a very nice demeanor about you, Rob. Like you you don't come across as you know I'm going to get this or here 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 we go. How does can you explore that a little bit more? Because I think that's missing. One of the things that's really bothering me is how um, tribalized and div- divided our culture has been. And I think that idea of empathy you were talking about with Kobe Bryant and then. You know, can, can you flesh that out? Like, is there, without telling tales out of school, is there a, a scenario you can think of where that ended up working out really well um, to the, the level you're comfortable sharing details? I'd just love to know, put some bones on that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I guess if you think about it, so not just for me, but if you're a general manager of a sports franchise and you are trying to win a championship, the the absolute key ingredient to that in any sport, whether it's hockey or baseball or basketball, yeah. is getting great players. You know, you can have the greatest general manager and the greatest coach in the and I to keep myself in a frame of humility, I tell myself every morning, like a team can have a great general manager and a great coach, but if their players aren't good, they're going to be zero wins, 80 losses. <laughs> Not have good players. And so I guess just to put meat on the bones of your question, you know, if let's say I'm negotiating with a player agent and, and it's maybe just a, on a basketball team, there's five starters. And maybe this negotiation happens to be for the 12th man on the team. Right. You know, so maybe someone that's not going to play a pivotal role, but the negotiation goes really, really well with the agent. He felt like he was dealt with honorably and fairly and kindly. Well, then fast forward. What if a year later that agent represents a, a player that's a superstar and is a free agent and says, gosh, you know, that went really well. I think this is an organization I can trust. They're transparent. They treat me with integrity and openness and kindness maybe that relationship capital and that glue puts you to the front in signing that player who can become, you know, a franchise changing player. So it's building up that social capital and that relationship capital, I think that that ultimately helps in the end. Yeah, that's a good point, right? Because you're you're negotiating for the 12th person, but that agent represents numerous people. And so you really have to you really have to think about treating people fairly. What about dealing with like the Kobe's or the LeBron James's and you weren't LeBron's agent, but you obviously brought him onto the Lakers, et cetera. When you're dealing with talent that large, uh, are there any different principles, strategies, or approaches that are more helpful or less helpful? You know, what's interesting, Carrie. So for 20 years, I was on the player agent side. And so you're an right. advocate for players. And in those 20 years, I was able to learn so much about how players think and what they need. And so I think what we've been able to do now is to take all those experiences where now I'm on the team side. And so we've tried to create a culture at the Lakers that says we want to be there to serve all the needs of the players and make sure they're getting actually everything they need. And because of those experiences I had before, we're able to identify those things. And the Lakers, if you go back, you know, three or four years, we were we were really in a period of losing a ton and couldn't turn it around. And um, then we really, you know, I've been working there for three years. And, and when we got hired, it was how do we create this culture of service, you know, of getting everything that the players need. And 
you know, like I said earlier, you've had other leaders on podcasts like Chick-fil-A comes out. Like that's one, it's all about the customers. How do we make mm. the customers feel good? And um, I think it's that same thread, you know, is at, at the Lakers. How do we create a culture where the players feel like this is the team I want to play for? Their leadership, they're, they're servant-oriented. I think that's really important. Yeah. And, and so let's, let's go there. Let's talk about that. Um, because uh, if my research is correct, was it uh, a franchise worst six-year playoff drought for the Lakers when they hired you? Yeah. We, you know, we were in a drought and I, um, I remember when I got the job, um, again, I, I had a, a dinner with Kobe and he, he was like, you know, I, I know how detail oriented, process oriented you are. And he said, you know, I'll give you two or three years and you'll have the Lakers back to a championship. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea at the time. I was like, you gotta be kidding me, but it was such a blessing. I think, you know, we played in a bubble. Carrie, so we we um, we won the 2020 World Championship, and because of the pandemic, we were forced to do it in a bubble in Orlando, Florida, right. um, where it was a hundred days of testing and all sorts of crazy things that that the world will never know. Um, difficult to be away from family and in a hotel for a hundred nights. Um, but again, I think in that environment where it's mentally taxing, it's emotionally taxing. I felt like the team that was going to come out in the end with the world championship trophy was probably the team and the players that were getting the best service from the organization mm-hmm. because life goes on when you're in a medical bubble, uh, you know, family members get married, people pass away, all sorts of stuff is going on and, and players are experiencing these things. And how are you coming around them to support them? You know, I, I so what would you do? What would you do uh, to support players? What What are some practical examples of how you create that culture? I think it's availability. It's time. I remember one of the players, um, um, you know, had a sister that was getting married, and it, he was. If he went to the wedding, then he'd have to come back and quarantine for fourteen days and miss a ton of games. So it's let's let's unpack what that means. And can we recreate on the other side of the bubble some way for you to celebrate with your sister that maybe the Lakers can be a part of to kind of recreate that moment. And that was a redemptive thing where ultimately we won the championship and the NBA allowed family members to come and his sister was able to come and see her brother win a championship. Oh, wow. So that got redeemed. But I mean, players would you know, in the middle, there was no, you know, laundry mats there or anything like that. So in the middle of the night, you know, I'd get a text like, Hey, you know, I'm out of like my t-shirts and boxers. How do I get X, Y, and Z? And, you know, it's just, okay, we want to help you with whatever you need. We want to make this smooth. It's the little things that matter. And I think players know when they feel cared for, just like customers, they know when they feel cared for. How did, how did that become your approach? Well, I think it goes back to that mosaic of life. I mean, I, um, I think all of your learnings, um, you know, over the years, I, I think, you know, clearly as a person of faith, I think, um, I think of an author like Kathleen Norris, who says, you know, it's like, don't call yourself a person of faith. Don't call yourself a Christian or call yourself Jewish or whatever you're let other people see those qualities in you. And I think when, when, you know, as a Christian, in my case, just, um, the qualities we learn about in the gospel of service and humility and compassion and empathy. If, if you can really put those 
into your life and others can see it. Like St. Francis of Assisi says, you know, preach and only use words if you have to. I think, you know, living that way, if people see that, it, it's so impactful. And, you know, I try to orient myself to that every morning. Um, you know, I think we all have probably different practices with how we start the day. But but for me, with a 12-year-old son and a 10-year-old daughter and being married, I the, the early, early hours have become precious, you know, 5 a.m. and um, getting up. And, and for me, it's, it's reorienting our mindset to those qualities every day and, and looking at life through the lens of, you know, hey, I have the privilege of being an instrument in God's hands. And how are you going to use this day? Like, the last thing I want to do is put myself at the center of this day and my plans, because then it's going to go horribly wrong. But if I can empty myself and just be an instrument, then man, the day takes on an adventure. And so for me, that's starting with meditation and journaling and scripture. And, you know, I used to look at it maybe when I was in high school or college, you know, the Richard Foster, you know, spiritual disciplines, and these are the things you have to do. But now for me, it's like, I can't wait up wait to get up because it's a gift and I can't go without it. Just starting my day that way. And it's kind of life support, isn't it, Rob? It really <laughs> like, is. It really is, Carrie. I hear you. So let's go back a couple of years. Um, the Lakers haven't won. They're not living up to the reputation, their potential. You get brought in. What are some of the first changes you made? So you're serving people. You're like, we're going to look after all the players. What were some of the other, like looking back on it, the key moments that led to the world championship in 2020? Yeah. So it was creating that culture. I don't need to revisit that. But the other thing then is, you know, building a sports team is, you know, I used this analogy the other night, um, you know, watching a Netflix show about chess playing. It was a master chess player. It's this show. Oh, is that Queen's Gambit? Yeah. The Queen. Yeah. We're working through that right now too. Yeah. So, and, and, and really like, building a roster and a coaching staff. It's how do I assemble all of these chess pieces on the board to, for it to be an effective game. Hmm. And part of that is there's 30 teams in the NBA. So you've got to study 29 other teams, chess boards, cause you're going to be playing against them. Right. And so <laughs> yeah, you've got true. to analyze their pieces and how they fit together and how they move around and then your own in terms of, of how you build a roster. And it's complicated because there's a, um, there's a salary cap, meaning you can only spend so much money and you've really got to be smart with how you put all that together. But, um, you know, for us, the first thing I started, um, you know, working with Magic Johnson, who was the president of the team and a great, great friend, an amazing person. Um, And the first thing we needed to do was kind of clear the deck. And there were a lot of pieces on the board that maybe weren't providing the value we needed. So we had to get them off and kind of create what's called salary cap space to rebuild the team. And so there was a process of kind of, you know, cleaning house a little bit at the beginning and then bringing in the players that we thought stood for um, what the Lakers excellence and championship level basketball is. And it, it took a little bit of time to do it. I don't think anyone expected us to win a championship in our third year. Um, but, you know, I, I look back on 2020 and it just feels like in many ways, you know, God's hand was on this season. Of course, there was the extraordinary tragedies um, around January 26th. There was the, you know, the, the social unrest and um, things that our nation was going through, the world was going through, the, the pandemic. And I do see this 
this title is, is having redemptive pieces to some of those really, really hard things. So that work that was put in um, two, three years ago leading to this, um, you know, certainly feels like grace. So one of your jobs is you manage a lot of egos, a lot of talent, millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars. What are some keys to navigating all of that? Because that, that just, that's really complicated. Yeah, it really is. I think um, it gets really down to mindset and and sort of how you're carrying yourself through the day. I in in the bubble in the medical bubble of Orlando, I read um, N. T. Wright's book on the Apostle Paul. Oh yeah, that's a thick book, man. It's a new you had a lot of time, and <laughs> you know, so much of his conclusions in that biography about Paul are that he spent Paul spent an extraordinary amount of time teaching us about where we center our thoughts and um, holding thoughts captive and thinking of heavenly things. And just so much of our day, I think, especially as leaders, we're attacked with complexities and things are being flashed at us. And it's how are we managing our thought life and, and making sure that we're holding our thought life accountable to the principles we want to live by. And I think that's really, really important in leadership positions. Um, and has been helpful, you know, to me in so many ways. Um, and, and it's something I think about throughout my day. So what do you do when your value system, and I'm, I'm getting a picture of your value system in this conversation, but not everybody on a team would buy into that. There's some guys who are like, no, Rob, I'm the deal. All right. You pay me X, you know, million dollars a year. And uh, my, my face is all over ESPN every night and I'm the lead leaguer, uh, I'm the league leader. How do you, how do you, how do you get that to gel in, in a team setting when not everybody shares those values? I think it's how, you know, it's definitely how you live it out. It, you know, it's, it's bringing in other people that you feel like share those same qualities. Um, we have a, a head coach who is, he's a really optimistic person. His thought life is very optimistic. A lot of coaches can be, you know, cantankerous or finger pointers, but we identified him. And this is a good anecdotal story that I'll let you into his lens. So we we won the world championship in mid-October of 2020. And then um, as soon as I got home, I hadn't seen my family, you know, for a hundred days, which is, which is hard. It gave you a deeper sense of appreciation for members of the military and, you know, people that are away from their family long-term, but I got home and then the way the NBA calendar worked because, because of this pandemic is we had to quickly turn to the NBA draft to draft players and then quickly turn to NBA free agency to re-sign contracts and build the team again for the 2021 season. And I had a number of people around me saying, you know, gosh, you don't even, you're working so hard on the other side of the bubble. You don't even get to savor the, the 2020 championship and the rings and the banner. Like you're, you're throwing yourself right into 2021. And I shared that with our coach, Coach Vogel, who's the optimist. And again, it's a mindset thing. And he said, he said, oh, don't buy into that mindset. He said, um, we get to savor the, the Lakers 2020 world championship forever. And so, you know, I think to answer your question, it's like surrounding yourself with people that share those qualities and kind of have the same mindset, I think is, is really, really important. Um, really important. 
Anything else you learned in the Orlando bubble, the the 100-day quarantine, the playing under those conditions that you think might speak into your future leadership when things move into more sane times? Like anything that you're like, oh, that was a great lesson. Yeah, just um, how incredibly powerful um, proximity to others and community and togetherness is in leadership. You, you can't lead from an ivory tower. Um, you know, if you think about it, we were in a hotel and so you get up in the morning and to your right, maybe is the team medical trainer to your left is LeBron James, you know, down the hall is the head equipment guy getting the uniforms ready. And it felt like a college campus, but the closeness and the daily togetherness as we were kind of going into the games and, and the wins and losses, um, was probably something that will never get duplicated in sports again, you know, cause we all go home to our houses and get in our cars and leave the game. But in this case, it's like, let's get on the bus and go back to the hotel together. And so even though, again, from a, a mindset perspective, even though there were some things that the pandemic caused us to lose with the 2020 world championship, like a parade for all the Lakers fans, which would have brought a million right. people into the streets there were also extraordinarily things gained, like just the shared experience of going through a world championship on a daily basis in a hotel together. I think that's a, a book that maybe someday gets written that I don't think other sports teams will ever experience. So there were some gifts. Um, and, you know, and then for me, I think the other thing I learned coming out of the bubble, you know, when you don't have um, the distractions and the comforts of like family, or taking your dog on a walk around the block or the things that you can kind of take a break from being on and work. Cause in the bubble, there was no break, right? If you left to go outside, there was another team and their coach and you're kind of on having a conversation about the game. If you went around the corner, you know, maybe some of your colleagues would be there. There was no escape. It was a hundred days of, of work environment. And so I really realized how important those things are to, um, a holistic approach to leadership, to be able to come home into the comforts of your kids, your family, reading a book by the fire, taking your kid on your dog on a walk. I, one of the graces in that is, you know, I have a 12 year old son and he plays basketball. And so my points of connection with him are off the chart. We can always find commonality. And then (laughs) my 10 year old daughter has a whole different wiring and she likes time with dad and I was praying before the bubble a lot, maybe for a year of, gosh, you know, God, I, I want to see new ways to connect with, with Emery. And I, it's so easy with my son, Durham. But, and when we were separated for 100 days, we got to get reunited in the bubble. There was, a, um, there was actually a, the hotel, and then there was this wooden bridge out to a little restaurant where you could eat. Um, and they allowed the families when we won the championship to, to meet us at that restaurant after the game to celebrate. So I hadn't seen my family for a hundred days and I'll never forget. I, the, the dock was kind of long to the restaurant and I, I was like, get, I got off the bus at the hotel and I knew my family was waiting in the restaurant. And I, I started kind of jogging down the dock and my 10 year old daughter, it's almost like a scene out of the movie or something. She left the restaurant and she came sprinting towards me and about halfway jumped up and hugged me and started crying. And she's not an emotional, hmm. she started crying and, and she was like, 
daddy, I never want to live life again without you. And, you know, Mm. it's that moment we've had this just unbelievable connection on the other side of the bubble. So just, you know, sometimes as we all know, you can go through extraordinarily different circumstances and hard circumstances in life, but it can lead to these unexpected graces that just come and you know, they're from the Lord. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, you have done something that the vast majority of, of listeners haven't, which is to win a world championship and to be at that, that place. I think we've all had moments of victory that we're like, oh, wow, we finally did whatever was on our list to do, right? What were some of the unique joys and some of the unique challenges or surprises that come with winning at the highest level? Yeah, you know, it's... I've, I've listened to some of your other extraordinary podcasts. Uh, I know the other day, Beth Moore was talking about social media and, and sort of the praise and criticism and living with that. And when you're in a position of professional sports, especially for a brand like the Lakers, that is a world renowned brand um, all over the globe. Um, you know, the, the players, the head coach and the general manager, they become um, you know, they become under the fire of public scrutiny and sports radio talk. And so at the beginning of this, I remember I, I, I kind of told, I made a vow to my wife, Kristen, I, I said, Hey, I think it's going to be really, really important that we hold each other accountable that, you know, when the times are good and you're getting the praise and, people are saying wonderful things is to not tune into that because then you're going to get big headed and prideful. And we all know what that leads to arrogance and all those awful qualities. At the same time, when the critics come out and I've been through that side as well, like any public figure and the attacks come is to not buy into those and and then start to get discouraged or self-doubting. So really stay away from those poles and, and, and where do we find ourselves committed to? It's the work. Just get mm. lost in the process of the work and, and try to block that noise out as much as possible. You know, and, and for me in the, on the championship run in the bubble, um, it was interesting, Carrie, because you, you, you'd play these you know, incredible games and everyone in the world's watching and you'd get back to your hotel room. And if it was a loss, it would feel like the end of the world, especially, you know, the NBA finals, because you, again, you didn't have anyone to comfort and console you. And I just had to kind of get into this place where I had, I had put my plans for the Lakers kind of at the center. Um, And God had a lesson to teach me, which is, you know, it's not, it's thy will be done, not my will be done. And, And I had really put, you know, my Lakers GM, like, this is how it should happen. I know this is what you want, God, (laughs) at the the center and quickly learned when I was able to surrender that to more of a thy will be done um, mindset. That's when the beautiful things started happening. So that was definitely a a learning lesson in the bubble too. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because doing research for this interview, uh, I was on Twitter and Twitter is not known for being kind and people were saying wonderful things about you. So uh, you know, greatest manager of all time, best GM in the league, uh, you know, you're the GOAT, that kind of thing. Do you pay attention to that at all? Or do you have people who monitor that for you? Or you're just like, keep my head down, do the work? You know, I think we're all human. So that stuff affects us. But as much as possible, I think, you know, it, again, going back to Paul and and some of his teachings, I think, you know, um, 
on the on the criticism side to that there and i've been i've been on both sides and you point mm. out some positive ones but I, you can find negative ones too and i think that's just the case with it, with most public figures but you know when it comes to the negative side one of the learning lessons that i as a person of faith i think you know there's paul's teaching about there is no condemnation for those that find themselves you know rooted in god's love and in the lord wow and that that verse or truth really took on new meaning to me through some of the criticism chapters, which is, you know, say what you want about me, um, positive or negative, but especially from a condemnation standpoint, it's, it's not going to impact me because my identity is elsewhere, you know, and it's, if you really are living a life where you are, your identity is being a child of God and, and your source of, um, power is in, in God's love and being used as an instrument in his hands, that stuff doesn't really play a big role. And it's very freeing. It's very freeing. Yeah, it would be. And I mean, you're being, you're being thrust into the heart of some of the biggest stuff on this planet, right? So it's not like, oh yeah, you know, (laughs) we did this little tiny thing at this little, you know, Z division school. It was like, no, 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 this is, this is like big league. This is, this is big stuff. So um, I got to ask you just from a strategy standpoint, and again, you know, uh, a lot of my leaders listening, the leaders know a lot more about this than I do, but you, you just come off a world championship, you win it, you, as you say, you're into the trade season, the uh, free agency, almost every commentator that I could see said that you made the team stronger. Like you just won a world championship, then you went out did a whole bunch of deals. You made the team stronger. Uh, I'm curious, why did you pursue making the team even more successful? And I don't mean that to be like a simple question, but a lot of people might say, oh, we can get two or three years out of this. What What was your thinking behind making all those deals? Well, Carrie, at the beginning of the interview, you told me you weren't um, a sports aficionado, but your questions show that you are becoming one because that that's a great insight that you saw that we made our team better. You uh, had Just to- a bit of research, that's yeah. all. <laughs> Um, I, you know, it's interesting. I think it gets to the concept of complacency and leadership. Um, you know, I think I remember, um, learning lessons from basketball players like Michael Jordan, um, from the Bulls and and Kobe on the Lakers, but they would often talk about, and some of these were conversations I, I had in person. Others is just kind of learning through reading interviews and books, but how, they felt like the mastery of their game would come in the off season. And here's what they meant is they would perfect a move um, on the court. So maybe a fadeaway jump shot or a, you know, a a hesitation pull up three pointer. These are advanced concepts, but they would create a move in the off season that they would use to destroy their opponents all season long. But then the defense and the competition catches up to that. And they say, okay, we are going to find a way to take that away. And so I would, I think it's the same thing with team building is when you win a championship a certain way, you know that there's 30 teams in the NBA, you're one of them. So the other 29 teams are going to find ways to say, hey, how do we take away the Lakers advantages and in the way they won a championship? And so I think it's having counter moves to what you did well. And it's not strained from your core competencies and your core culture, 
you know, our head coach has defined our team as a defense first team. So that theme will remain. But how do we make moves around the edges, knowing that the competition is going to take away some of, try to take away some of our strengths and, and not being complacent to just say, oh, you know, we can sit back, we won, we can continue to win, we don't need to do anything new. I think great leaders and great companies are always evolving um, and always reinventing parts of themselves. And um, I think that's one of the things that went into the thinking around going from the 2020 team that won the world championship to a 2021 team, Lakers team, that's different, but better. Do you tend to be a leader who has like, do you take it season by season? And obviously at some level, I think you would have to, right? Because injuries, retirements, all that stuff plays into the mix and then what other teams do. But do you have uh, do you tend to think in a in a two to three year vision or like, do you have other things that you're kind of moving toward or you read those things in the moment? I think more of a fluid, I'm more of a fluid thinker. I think that, you know, like a game of chess or a sports game, you never know exactly how it's going to play out because different yeah. things transpire during the game. And I, I think with this particular line of business, to your point, there's so many unexpected things that can happen, an injury, a trade, different things can come up that I try to stay nimble and fluid in terms of all of that. Um, that doesn't mean you're reactionary. Um, you're always prepared. You know, we, we are methodically prepared when we, when we go into, uh, you know, a, an NBA draft, um, or a trade, uh, or a, um, trade deadline or free agency period, you know, we have reams and reams of, of, of our articulated, you know, sort of strategic blueprints and plans that have been thought through for months. So I think it's, it's, it's a combination of staying fluid, but also being incredibly prepared when moments come your way that you've thought through them ahead of time. It seems to me, Rob, that you've got um, some great personal disciplines. You talk about getting up in the morning, reading scripture, having that quiet time. And, and I'm sure, you know, you look to be incredibly fit from what I can see. Um, but I'd love to talk about the role of conditioning. Um, it's a bit of a strange direction. I want to talk about sleep. Uh, some of the stuff that I've read online, and feel free to correct it, is that LeBron James will spend up to a million, a million five on conditioning and that he'll sleep uh, up to 12 hours a day between a solid night's sleep and a nap to prepare. Um, sleep's something I take really seriously and think about. Um, so I'd love to know what you think about preparation for on-court time and preparation even for your own leadership. Can you comment on that for a little while? Yeah, I think that that level of detail and preparation is essential. I think when you meet the, the, the genius leaders, these are the 0.001 percenters, there, there's no detail of their life or their day that hasn't been thoughtfully, you know, unpacked, turned around, thought through um, with a plan. And, you know, the, the great players, LeBron and Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and Kobe, it's not like they just show up and play. Right. The, the systems that they have around them from, you know, their dietary and nutritional plan to their sleep plan to their body recovery plans. A lot of them talk about, you know, kind of prehab. It's not like I get injured and then I rehab, but how do I stay in front of a possible injury? Um, I think to be truly great at anything in life, you know, you have to pour all of yourself into it. And it is jaw dropping to see what some of these guys do. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, of course, try to, to put some of those practices into, you know, your own life with proper rest, um, and a proper sleep schedule and a proper nutritional schedule. And I think when you're a leader, of course, other people are going to be looking to you for guidance. And so I think it's important to kind of, you know, live what you preach. Um, that's just kind of how I've been. I, I'm more wired as probably a type A perfectionist and that can be a gift and a curse, but yeah, it does kind of, but, but I know how important too, I'm married to um, more of an adventurer, you know, on the Enneagram scale, she's more the, I think it's the, the three or the party or the every moment's a party. And so it's kind of a perfect, um, the perfect compliment. And she's great at making sure I don't stay so locked in that I become robotic. You know? Right. Are you, are you a one? Do you know your type? Rob? I, I would have to dig back. I think, um, I think that sounds right. Perfectionism is, is, would be a one, but you know, so, but it, you know, for me, it's, it's, um, I do have to kind of force myself into adventure and work breaks, but for me, that comes in spending time with the kids. And then I'm a very avid reader, um, and, you know, fiction, nonfiction. And you talked at the beginning of, you know, Hey, you know, how have you shaped yourself? And it's, you pull from random things. I, I, uh, one of my favorite novels, um, is Les Mis by Victor Hugo. And, one of my favorite fictional characters of all time is the Bishop, you know, and it's, I've had patches as a leader where people have said, Oh gosh, you really showed a lot of grace in this. I don't know how you've done that. And, you know, you just think about all the things you experience in life. And as you read and, and he, the Bishop in that story, of course, has extraordinary grace when he could, you know, frame John Valjean for stealing the silver candles, but he, you know, basically tells the police officer, no, he forgot to take these two. And, (laughs) And it, with that moment of grace, like transforms this, this criminal's life into, you know, a person that changes multitudes of other people's lives in positive ways. And, you know, I think that's probably at the core of, of all of our missions, I think, as leaders is how do we lead with those qualities. You mentioned uh, jaw-dropping habits of some of these players when you look at how meticulous and ridiculous they get in terms of their uh, their preparation for a game, their their rhythms, routines, and habits. Without telling tales out of school, you got one or two you feel comfortable sharing, like just some really ninja practices? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think with LeBron, it, it, you, you see him, he'll play a game, and then you'll see the next morning he may be in the weight room um, you know, spending an hour on on his body. I mean, you know, most people would just Hey, I just need to rest, but like just the way they attack things, I think, um, you know, Kobe, if, if, if he would have, there's legendary stories, you know, if he would have an off shooting game at Staples center in Los Angeles, when all the reporters and the crowd left, he would grab the, the, the ball boy or the trainer and go back out in the darkness at night and, and make, the shot he missed maybe that cost the team the game, make that, you know, 500 times before he could go to bed. So just these meticulous um, ways of, of always kind of getting ahead and striving to be great. Um, it really is inspiring to see these guys and the level they put in um, to being the, the best in the world at what they do. 
Do you have any habits that you would say, uh, obviously your scripture reading and, and your morning time, but any that you kind of say, okay, this is probably bordering on extreme, anything like that, that really helps you that other people looking in might go, huh, what's that about? You'd have to ask my wife that one because she would probably make fun of half of my habits. But, I, you know, I think throughout the day, I tend to stay really, really busy. And so part of that's nutrition. You know, I may, instead of sitting down for the big two-hour celebration lunch that would make me want to take a nap at two, you know, I may do the, you know, grab a power smoothie and, you know, maybe some, uh, you know, raw nuts or something and eat healthy and keep moving. But I, I think trying to stay adaptive and trying to, to be healthy and, and, you know, eat a lot of little things throughout the day to not bog myself down. I think, you know, my wife and kids would make fun of me for that, but maybe that's, that's <laughs> favorite books, Rob, you, you're an avid reader. Any you would recommend it's like, wow, if you're going to read some books this year, make sure you check these few out. You know, I'm, I'm sitting by my bookshelf. I, I think, some of the authors that I've, I've loved so much over the years, I think Philip Yancey um, and, you know, Tim Keller has been amazing. Um, C.S. Lewis, um, George McDonald. Um, I'm a big Thomas Merton fan. Dallas Willard, you know, and his books have shaped my life. So that would be more on the, on the, you know, sort of nonfiction. And then I just love stories and novels. And um, I love Dickens, the Tale of Two Cities is one of my favorites. I've, I've mentioned uh, Victor Hugo, Les Mis, um, Dostoevsky, um, The Brothers K. Um, mm. Those are stories I read over and over and find new nuggets every time I read them. But um, I do love to read. Uh, I do love to read. That's great. Do you read leadership books as well? Or you tend more towards spiritual and uh, fiction? Probably more towards spiritual and fiction. I, I, I do also love to read great biographies. Um, I love oh, me too. Yeah. Nelson Mandela's autobiography is one of my favorites. Um, hmm. Chuck Colson's biography of course is a classic, um, and, and one of the great stories. Um, if you want a sports biography that is incredibly moving, um, Andre Agassi's open is one of my favorite biographies of all time. And, um, I highly recommend that one too. Okay. I have not read that, but I've heard it, heard it recommended. I'll have to check that out. We'll link to all of those in the show notes as well. Rob, uh, anything you want to share with leaders? I'm, I'm thinking about your point about being agile, right? Because when you really think about all the other teams making moves, your players have good years and bad years. Um, I'd love, cause I think we're moving into an agile year and I do a lot of coaching of leaders on agility. And I think, you know, my natural default is to find what worked and try to milk that as long as I possibly can. So trying to stay agile as a leader myself. Uh, any, any final words on one or two keys to agility for leaders? Yeah, I think, I think part of agility in some sense, Carrie, is, is just getting back to that mindset of, of emptying yourself a little bit. I mean, you know, we, we are all as leaders instruments in the creator's hands and, you've been used as an instrument to, to take all these different stories and lives and bring them to one place where all of us can listen to them and stay agile because we learn. Um, so you've been used in that way and encouraged so many people and so many leaders. And we're all so appreciative of that. And I think that's probably through a lens of you trying to figure out, you know, what is this life all about and how did I end up here? I think for me, 
You know, I grew yeah. up in a small town in, in Illinois. And I think, um, to, 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 if you start like the, the kids, um, you know, little drawings that you do when you're in grade school of, of taking the maze and using your pencil to go from point A to point Z, I think of, of my journey. How did I end up from a little town in Illinois to being the general manager of the world championship, Los Angeles Lakers? I, I think looking at that maze, it, it'd be like taking a Swiss watch and, disassembling it and throwing it into the Sahara desert and, and the wind blows and all of a sudden the watch comes back together. Like that's how, that's how unlikely that journey is. And so you realize that it's only because you're an instrument in God's hands and he's weaving together a story. But I, I think the, the more we can put ourselves in that framework to start the day, we'll be agile because then it's not the lens of like, how can I dominate and control this day? then you're not agile, then you're motivated by that self-voice and narcissism and all of those things. But if it's more, how can I be used as an instrument to make other people's lives better and the people that I work with, then you can stay agile. And I, and I think that's been the key for me. That's a really good word to young leaders too. Um, I think it was in the Eagles uh, Netflix documentary years ago where Joe Walsh said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing because he was asked about his journey to success and as a member of the Eagles. And uh, I think he said, you know, <laughs> at the time, it just felt like random chaos. But looking back on it, it's like a beautifully orchestrated poem. And I look at my life as a young leader and it's like, yeah, how did I end up here? How did I end up, you know, interviewing you? How did you end up being a listener? How did all of that happen? I have no idea. But that idea of, oh, this looks kind of interesting. Why don't we try this for a little while? There's a lot of wisdom in that. And I think staying agile as you get older uh, is even more of a discipline. I love that. I love the poem metaphor. And um, I, you know, I do think that the world wants all of us to get caught up in, you know, what's the future hold? And, you know, it's, I, I think there's so much comfort in that, you know, figuring out, God's will for your life is not your responsibility. Like if mm. you really start your day open and empty, that will be revealed to you. Um, it's God's promise, right? And so it's 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 flipping the lens. And it is, we all can be grateful that when you know you look in the review mirror of life, you can see those seeds of faithfulness, you know, throughout. And um, it's so important, I think, to be mindful of those things, um, to face the uncertainties and the unpredictabilities and the fears of the future is to look at the faithfulness in, in, in all of our past. Well, I know we get to follow you in the papers. I know we get to follow you online uh, through media outlets, but are you active on social? Is there a place where you tend to show up or um, you just kind of do your job day to day? I guess the question I'm asking is where can people learn more about you online? I'm, I'm probably pretty old school, Carrie, but maybe you'll have to give me some lessons about getting a little bit more active on social someday. If uh, we continue to have success, maybe I'll open up up, up that avenue if you can. <laughs> I love it. Rob, thanks for doing this really long press conference and uh, all these atypical questions. It's been an absolute joy to get to know you a little bit. Thank you for reaching out and saying, hey, and uh, what, a, what a thrill to have this conversation with you. Thanks, Carrie. Continued blessings on your show. Uh, I won't listen to this one, but the ones that come in, I'll be excited to listen to. <laughs> Rob, I'm grateful. All right. See you, buddy. Well, that really was a very special conversation. Really struck by Rob's humility in the midst of all of this. Just the level-headedness he has. And uh, 
oh, I'll, I'll remember this one for years to come. And uh, hey, we have transcripts and show notes. You can go to kerrynewhoff.com forward slash episode 393. I've also got a what I'm thinking about segment. I'm going to share with you a few qualities and characteristics I see. I've almost, I think I've interviewed 500 leaders now. Uh, I want to give you some of the, the, the qualities and characteristics I see continually in highly effective leaders. So that's coming up in just a moment. Um, hey, we have a fresh episode coming up next time. I, I just love being able to do this. And next time, we are going to talk to Hannah Brencher. Her first public speaking event was a TED Talk in New York City when she was 24 years old. Fast forward to a few years from now, she reflects on what she's learned as a communicator, uh, all about millennials, their addiction to platform, and the future of what her generation wants in digital and physical interaction. It was a fascinating conversation. Here's an excerpt. I'm surrounded by like, scientists and botanists and Nobel Prize winning, you know, and I'm just this girl with a mail crate. And he started talking to me and kind of maybe getting to the root of like, okay, like let's push past some of like this prose and like, let's just have a conversation here. And I said something about my mother, which ends up being the introduction to the talk. But he was like that right there. I want you to start with your mom. I want you to tell us about your mom. I want you to go in right there. And it changed the whole direction of the talk. Subscribers, you won't miss that. If you're new to the podcast, many of you are. It's the beginning of a new year. Uh, Just hit subscribe and you won't miss a thing. And here's what you won't miss. Seth Godin, Craig Rochelle. Christine Knuckles, John Cotter from Harvard Business School, Michael Arietta, Cal Newport, uh, John Acuff. And uh, yeah, we even got a couple of executives from NASA coming on the podcast this year. Yeah, we're mixing it up a little bit. I'm so excited to bring you this year's lineup and subscribers you get it for free. Thank you for leaving ratings and reviews. Thanks for telling friends if this uh, meant something to you. Tag me. Uh, Rob is not on social, but uh, you can give him a shout out as well. And uh, so thankful for your interaction online. Well, it's time for what I'm thinking about. And we're going to talk about the qualities and characteristics of highly effective leaders. It's brought to you by ProMedia Fire. Book your free digital strategy session today at promediafire.com forward slash church growth. And by ServeHQ, go to servehq.church to start your free 14-day trial of their online subscription tools for churches and nonprofits. And use the code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, to get 10% off for life. So, Hundreds of interviews in, uh, having spent years with some of the top leaders in the world and in leadership. What am I noticing about uh, great leaders? Well, you know, there's some really surprising and endearing characteristics, and it's not what you think. So generally speaking, here's what they do. Uh, They show up on time. Yeah, believe it or not, punctuality is a feature of great leaders. And if they can't, they let you know. Um, that is something that I really struggled with as a young leader. It would be like, well, I'm busy or traffic was bad and just, you know, build some margin in, show up on time. Uh, number two, they do their homework. Uh, I'm amazed. A lot of you probably heard the Andy Stanley interview, like Andy, he gets his questions a week in advance and Andy's got notes. Now he's great. I mean, he just talks like, you know, it's just rolling off the top of his, his, uh, his head, but my goodness, do, do some of these leaders ever do their prep? They do their homework. So pay attention to that, right? I, I tend to be a little more freewheeling, but uh, well, for an interview like this with Rob, even though I wasn't like a basketball guy, I spent a long time getting ready for this interview. Do your homework. Uh, that's something they do. You know, you know what else is really personal? They call you by name. You're not just another appointment. You're not just someone else on, you know, who am I seeing now? What's your name? They call you by name and you will be amazed if you go back and listen to these episodes, uh, 
time and time again, even if I'm meeting someone for the first time, they'll say, you know, that's a, that's an interesting question, Carrie. And they'll remember, they won't be like, what's your name again? Like they, they take the time to be very personal. Uh, another thing that's really powerful is they're okay not being good at everything. For the most part, they realize, you know, my leadership has a very narrow lane. I'm very good at a few things. I'm not very good at a lot of other things. And they're cool with that. Uh, they also follow through fast. I am shocked sometimes. Uh, Seth Godin was a great example. Rob also followed up by email immediately with a couple of thoughts he had. Um, I mean, these guys are on it. These women are on it and they follow through fast. So if you're like, oh yeah, I got all these unread messages. It's like, you might want to think about your system because I find that top leaders will get back to you super quickly. Uh, Number six, they take their work, not themselves seriously. Of all the things, you know, of this interview with Rob that I remember is he has just somehow stayed so grounded and he takes his work really seriously, but he doesn't take himself very seriously. And I see a lot of leaders who, who don't operate at a very high level. They take themselves very seriously, uh, but not more seriously than their work. So just, you know, he, Jim Collins identified humility as the difference between a level four and level five leader. And I think you saw that in today's interview in, in spades. And then finally, they're incredibly down to earth. Uh, I think when you really get behind the veneer, you expect, you know, all these people who have success and fame and all that. And I've found that the leaders who go the furthest are often the most humble. And humility is one of the main characteristics that I pulled away from my conversation with Rob and, and with so many other leaders on this podcast. So if you're thinking about how to improve your own leadership, those are some things I would really be paying attention to. Hey, I hope you really enjoyed uh, this conversation, this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I can't wait to do it again. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.